Hey, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Beyond the Breakers, a podcast about shipwrecks, loss, and lessons learned from maritime disasters. My name's Tanner, and I'll be one of your hosts today. Before we get started, we do have some new patrons to thank. So I want to give a big shout out to Jacob, Stephen, and Bradley. Thank you so much for supporting the show. And we will have our December bonus content uh, coming at you fairly soon here in the next couple weeks. Uh, so now I guess we can bring in Taylor. Uh, how's it going? Not too bad. Uh, a little under the weather today. I think I've caught it from my children. They've all been sick for the last like week and a half. And I think it's my turn. I uh, <laughs> kind of just want to lay down and go to sleep. But uh, the podcast minds call. So here I am. Just like with hypothermia. Don't. <laughs> yeah, don't do don't, that. Don't go to sleep. <laughs> what have you been up to since we recorded? It's been a, it's been a bit since we recorded last. We had kind of an extra long gap between. Yeah, I feel like um, this holiday season has just been hard to find the time to do it. Um, there's just been so much going on with everything. I've, I've kind of noticed that with other pods, too. I check my like podcast feed every day. I'm like, huh, no new episodes. I know, um, like Minion Death Cult went to like a, um, they went to Patreon only, I just think, for or? like the holiday season. Yeah. But one of those guys is a UPS delivery guy, so I'm sure he's working oh, yeah. like crazy hours right now. So yeah, it's just been a lot, and I think we both have just been so busy. Um, you know, it's hard to find that, and you don't want to the kind of thing you want to rush and half ass. So, I mean, there there won't be a difference to our listeners because they're going to get it at roughly <laughs> the same time they always do, right? It's the behind the scenes magic. Um, as far as like media stuff, though, I uh, finished a book by Peter Hart about the Psalm, and it was very much like a blow by blow account. And then I thought, you know what I want? I want more World War One. So I read it. I picked up another book by Peter Hart. It is The Great War, a combat history of the First World War. Hmm. And it really lives up to its name. It's very combat focused. It kind of strips away a lot of the politics um, it kind of simplifies the politics, which I think it's nice to read a book like this. Like this would not be the only book I would want to read about World mm-hmm. War One if I'm trying to understand it. Yeah, but as far as like the actual mechanics of combat and like primary sources that were there, mm-hmm. it's such an excellent resource of learning what that was like. Uh, one of the things that stood out to me in this book and in the the previous one, how often they would just grab a sack of Mills bombs, which are basically hand grenades, and like go take a <laughs> trench. Yeah, like it's. It wasn't like always just like, let's get up and charge with bayonets. Like it's the civil war. It's like, now here's a sack of grenades. Go take that trench. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so it's, it's brutal. Like I, just how like physical, like all of the combat was in world war one. It's just like seeing that. It's like, you carry them in a bag. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's an interesting book. Um, what about you? My biggest thing, something different uh, was terror camp. Nice. Uh, which uh, was this past weekend. I think this was their third year doing it. This was my first time attending it. It was really, really great. So uh, Terror Camp, for those unfamiliar, is, it, I mean, it's essentially an online conference dealing with kind of terror and Erebus, the Franklin Expeditions, kind of the central uh, core of it, but it has expanded out to cover kind of all polar exploring i mean just because there's such a huge such a vibrant passionate fan base for that um i think it was a couple hundred people who were attending this year and like any uh, i mean it it function it ran just like any other academic conference i've been to it ran better than 
the majority of academic conferences I've been to. <laughs> and, and, and not a huge conference, but still, like, I mean, I've been to, like, you know, um, TESOL and Wisconsin TESOL conferences that didn't run half as well as this one did. Nice. Um, it was really great. I mean, yeah, that's and, cool to be able to take part in something like that in kind of a meaningful way, actually. And it's just great because, I mean, it's obviously easy access, it's free, it's online just being presented by people who have a passion for these topics and want to share. I mean, very, very similar to how, what we do with the podcast. I mean, mm-hmm. the- yeah, I think that's one thing that I think is interesting is how many of our, you know, fans or followers or listeners, whatever you want to call them are like terror focused. Yeah. Um, well, and honestly, like this was a good opportunity. A lot of the presentations, you know, they would give the presentation and then at the end they'd have their contact information and be like, oh, we interact with this person on Twitter all the time. I had no idea who this person actually it, was. It is funny, um, um, like meeting someone in real life that you only know from like a Twitter screen name. <laughs> there were some really great presentations. I mean, they, they were all so good and on so many different topics. Um, like there was one that was specifically focused on handwriting, but like specifically like spelling and orthography mm-hmm. um, and kind of studying the difference in, um, you know, based on age and levels of education and, you know, how often they're writing back to people and who they're writing to, what they're writing about, um, was really interesting. This is like all of your interests, like really, I mean, one place. Yeah. There was one, uh, there was one called fail sons of Hudson Bay. That one sounds Um, interesting. Day one terror day was focused on the North pole. Mm -hmm. And then day two Erebus day was focused on the South pole. Which, I mean, I don't know that I'm not that familiar with a lot of uh, polar stuff, but even much less the South Pole. I didn't I I didn't really know anything um, going on there, but it was all so good. I was able to I was able to see probably 90 percent, 95 percent of of the um, of the presentations live as they were going. Really, really great stuff. The um, the keynote talk actually on on the first day was from. I hope I'm saying their names right. Uh, Nevi Nielsen and uh, Paul Reedy from the terror. Nice. Um, Nevi Nielsen is, is a uh, Silna who helps them out slash possibly controls the uh, uh, Tunbach. <laughs> I uh, have not seen the, the TV series. I really? need to watch that at some point. Oh, yeah. I thought you had seen that. I must um, confess to all of our listeners. I have not and, actually seen the TV series. And then Paul uh, plays uh, Dr. Harry Goodsir. So it was, I mean, it was really cool. I was, I was really impressed that like, you know, this is a relatively small kind of niche conference, but you know, having, um, having, you know, these actors from this TV show that kind of for, for a lot of the people started this uh, obsession is what you could call it is really cool. Um, Cause it really did start focused much more focused kind of on the TV show as that springboard. And it's just cool how that has brought so many people together with a diverse range of like talents and interests and just kind of uniting over something that is, I don't know, it's, it's kind of counterintuitive. You, you wouldn't think that the Franklin expedition and specifically <laughs> a, an AMC TV series about the Franklin expedition would do this, but it's really cool. Yeah. I think, Anytime you can get some passionate people together about something, you know, it doesn't have to be the biggest conference for it to be a good time. I'm ready for the next one. <laughs> awesome. I'm hoping that I can participate in the next one. So uh, we have an episode to finish up here. Previously on Beyond the Breakers. So last week we started into the 2010 Gaza Freedom Flotilla. We looked at the history, the context. We did a epic speed run through the Arab 
Israeli conflict. Um, <laughs> so quick. <laughs> so we looked at that. We got up to the point of the installation of the blockade on the Gaza Strip. We discussed the legality of that blockade. We discussed the UN General Assembly and the Security Council ruling that Israel does in fact occupy Gaza, which would inherently make that blockade illegal. Israel argues that it does not occupy Gaza since they don't keep soldiers there in permanent garrison capacity. So at the end of part one, we were just getting to about 4 a.m. on May 31st with the boarding of the Mavi Marmara by Israeli military forces. And we're going to get into the details of that boarding. Uh, So rewinding just a little bit here. I'm going to quote here from Jamal El-Shayal, who was on board the Mavi Marmara. At 2 a.m. local time, the organizers informed me that they had rerouted the ship as far away from Israel as possible, as deep into international waters as they could. They did not want a confrontation with the Israeli military, at least not by night. So this detail was also included in the quote we read at the end of part one. But when this contact is initially made with Israeli vessels, the flotilla's next move is to turn further out to sea. So that is further into international waters, Mm -hmm. trying to hopefully, you know, stave off any potential confrontation. So radio contact was made around 1030 p.m. on the 30th, with the Israeli Navy contacting each of the flotilla vessels sequentially requesting that they switch to an alternate channel. Uh, This was refused by each of the vessels so that they could remain on a channel where everyone could hear everything. Mm -hmm. Yeah, weird that you would want to, you know, do all these talks in private. Yeah, anything you can say to them, you can say to all of us. (laughs) Um, But so far, all of this is in line with what previous flotillas had experienced. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I think that's something important to remember. Like These people aren't expecting this to go off easy. Right. Like, I mean, I think everyone's aware of what they're potentially getting into by doing this. Yeah. As we mentioned, like the previous two, previous three, I want to say, had encountered obstacles, had not made it to the to the objective. So, you know, they're not expecting this to be. So in these conversations with the Israelis, each flotilla captain affirmed that their destination was Gaza with the purpose of delivering humanitarian aid. Captains also contested that the aforementioned blockade was illegal and that the Israelis had no right to order a change of course. Uh, Radio contact continued off and on until around 2 a.m., so this is now on the 31st, when comms equipment was jammed by the Israeli ships. I guess that's the other thing to remember here is, like, they're not necessarily trying to, like, sneak and run this blockade. They're not trying to hide their existence from the Israeli Navy. They've been announcing this for, you know, weeks at this point. Like, honestly, I feel like you want the attention. Like, right? Like, that's the whole point, is that you want everyone to know you're there. So now to an interesting subtopic here. Something that we've seen in the past two months, and that is the Israeli use of audio evidence to support a narrative more sympathetic to Israel. I'm going to read a quote here. And as you're reading it, think about, does this remind you of anything? Uh, so this is quoting from the UN report. In early June 2010... Audio recordings were released by the Israeli authorities of apparent exchanges between the Israeli Navy and the Define Y, which included insulting references by unknown persons referring to Auschwitz and the September 11, 2001 attack on the World Trade Center in New York. However, the mission is not satisfied that these recordings are authentic, nor has the government of Israel made this material available 
to the mission for appropriate examination. The mission was given positive evidence that no such statements were made by anyone involved in communications of the flotilla. So, we've all been on Twitter enough to know when someone tells a story that like isn't true because it's too <laughs> perfect. Mm-hmm. Like, I don't doubt that someone probably said something insulting to the Israeli military, mm-hmm. but like, I don't know. Nine Eleven is a weird one because I don't think Israel really cares about nine eleven. Yeah, it's such a weird calculated thing. And it's like what you see with with a lot of the pretty poor quality propaganda that the Israelis have put out since invading Gaza is, you know, who it's aimed at. Yeah, it's very obvious if you read that objectively that, yeah, it is it is made for a Western audience. Just like the medical boxes labeled with big English letters, medical supplies that are clearly empty. Um just like the repeated attempts to to show that, oh, they have a copy of Mein Kampf, which like isn't something that has a lot of valence in that part of the world. I can't imagine why a Palestinian person would want to read Mein Kampf. I just don't um, know what, what they would get out of that. Like the thing with the, the terrorist guard schedule that was just a calendar with the days of the <laughs> week on it. The audience that they're sending this to is a Western English speaking audience. Those are the people that they have to convince and keep on their side. So. Uh, we see it again here, attempts to play with evidence and say, oh, well, look what happened. Um, they're they're clearly in the wrong here. So shortly after the initial radio contact around 11 p.m. on the 30th, those aboard the flotilla became visually aware of the Israeli vessels approaching the ships. Around 1 a.m., so this is about an hour before the radios are jammed, the larger vessels came into view. I'd like to also point out that jamming radios and not allowing anyone to communicate is a clear like escalation. Mm-hmm. And this is in international waters. Is that correct? Yes. Okay. Is. I just wanted to make sure that, that all, all my facts were straight. I'm kind of glad we did that. I'm alone episode recently mm-hmm. because like these are far more alike than, than you would think like at first blush, but like right. kind of similar stories. They, they really are. And I was reading an article actually, it was a really interesting read but I just didn't have time to incorporate it into the notes. Uh, It was called another weird connection here. It was called the Deepwater Horizon, the Mavi Marmara, and the dynamic zonation of ocean space. Interesting. It was about how, how maritime incidents interact with the boundaries that we put, we attempt to put on the ocean. Mm -hmm. So it went into kind of some of those boundaries, the overlapping, like the EEZ, you know, the exclusive economic zone, kind of what that entails, what kind of rights that confers upon a given nation, and how it's it's far less than what's conferred, you know, within that, what is it, 12 mile, I think, offshore. Yeah, there's a bunch of different ones. Like Basically like, saying that, you know, if this ship had made it, you know, close to shore, if they're if they're five miles offshore and the Israelis do this, that still would probably be an incident, but it wouldn't be the egregious breach of international law because that's saying, hey, you're in our territorial waters we are going to take action to defend ourselves. Right, which, I mean, I think any country would probably do the same thing. Like, I, Yeah, exactly. At that point, yeah, you're not committing an international crime. Whereas if you're doing this in international waters, this looks a lot like piracy. Yeah, it, I mean, is it not? Like, this is, <laughs> we get mad at the Yemenis when they do it, but... 
It is pretty wild that they're just launching off missiles left and right. It really is. <laughs> Ansar Allah is like the the only ones carrying their weight in the region, it seems like. That's pretty do, wild. Do, doing what they say they're going to do. Like, it's going to end so poorly for them at some point, but... Probably, but, you know... <laughs> you know, f*** it, we ball. <laughs> the major focus here is going to be on the Mavi Marmara, so of course there are the other vessels. Most of the action is taking place here on the big one. It's the largest vessel, it's got the most people on board, and it's the focus of the Israeli boarding operation. The first boarding attempt happened just before 4.30 a.m. on the 31st. So for some time, the flotilla ships had been surrounded by Israeli forces in Zodiac boats, and at this point, some of those boats closed in. In international waters, correct? Yes, very much so. Just want to go back to that point. One section... Actually, here, before we, before we address that, I, I think we may have covered this in part one, but just to reiterate, there are sort of extended permissions in enforcing a blockade. If if a blockade is is being conducted legally, there are certain allowances for going into international waters to enforce it, if that's the destination port for mm-hmm. a vessel. I, I don't know hard and fast rules but i know that there i know that it, it does go beyond just oh you're in international waters this is illegal if the blockade is deemed to be legal there are certain things you can do in international mm-hmm. waters um but of course most of the world here is agreeing that this is not a legal blockade so the zodiac boats are closing in one section of the book midnight on the mavi marmara features the essay first they appeared as shadows by sumeya ertekin She's a Turkish journalist, reporter, I want to say. Um, She describes the boarding as follows. At 4 a.m., when we were getting ready for a live broadcast again, we learned that the number of Israeli ships around us was 14. We immediately started the live broadcast and reported that. Around half an hour later, the morning call to prayer was heard on board. A few minutes after the call to prayer, Israeli assault boats surrounded us. First, the soldiers attempted to board, and bottles were thrown from the ship to the assault boats. When they could not enter the ship by the assault boats, they started shooting while retreating. Then a helicopter appeared over the ship and started to descend. It stopped over the deckhouse. In the meantime, there was a constant sound of shots. So one thing the UN report notes is, at this point, there would be a certain expectation on the part of the Israelis to reassess what they're doing Mm -hmm. because this is the first time there's been any sort of concerted resistance to them boarding a ship. So kind of the responsibility of kind of saying, okay, what, what's going to happen if we try to board this harder by force? The UN report details the helicopter assault as follows. At this point, between 10 and 20 passengers were located in the central area of the top deck. The Israeli forces used smoke and stun grenades in an attempt to clear an area for the landing of soldiers. The first rope that was let down from the helicopter was taken by passengers and tied to a part of the top deck and thereby rendered ineffective for the purpose of soldiers' descent. A second rope was then let down from the helicopter and the first group of soldiers descended. This seems like a really dangerous operation and a really big escalation. Like, boarding a ship via helicopter is dangerous in, like, regular times. 
And also keep in mind, because later there will be allegations from the Israelis that the ship was armed, that it was carrying weapons, that it was carrying guns. If you note how the passengers are defending themselves, it certainly doesn't seem like they have any firearms, because you would think at this point they would use them. Right. They're throwing bottles. They're breaking pieces off the ship to to throw and hit people with. Uh, This is clearly not a not an armed vessel in any sense. So for the minutes that this boarding is happening, eyewitnesses attest to constant gunfire. But it's it's worth looking at what kind of gunfire, because, again, this this is not it's not an enemy warship they're boarding. This is something they know is a humanitarian convoy. Mm -hmm. They know the kind of people who are on it. In fact, they know specific people who are on it because uh, some of these soldiers involved had a pre briefing on some of these specific people they would be looking for. They had identification cards and information and things like that. So they know exactly who they're dealing with. So uh, the firing was a mix of plastic, rubber, beanbag, and most importantly, live ammunition. I'm going to throw it out there that um, I, if I'm getting shot at, like I don't care if it's plastic, rubber, beanbag, whatever, Like it's not a good day. <laughs> yeah, we're going to see in a minute what a beanbag round can do. Less than lethal is should be more like um, maybe not lethal. Yeah. Sometimes it is. So when we discuss the final death toll, we'll go more into detail about what some of the forensics indicated about where and how these these rounds are used. So a piece here that I want to I want to throw in here, we're kind of moving to the next stage uh, of the engagement. That initial shooting, you know, happening on the top deck as they're coming off these helicopters. Some of the people on board attested that the Israelis were firing as they descended on these ropes. That doesn't seem very realistic. You know, the investigation, it's one of those things where there is a lot of fire incoming from the helicopters themselves. Eyewitness reports are notoriously sketchy things get mixed up especially if you're not like a professional who uses this kind of thing like you're not going to know what's the difference between a less than lethal round and a live round or like you know you're not going to be shooting as you're fast roping down from a helicopter you might be shooting when you're in the helicopter and yeah if you're if you're a passenger on board you know this is not something you've experienced before a lot of that stuff is going to meld together you're not going to be able to parse out what was happening where but another key factor in this story that comes from that you know that initial the the initial boarding process i'm going to quote here from the un report during the initial fighting on the top deck three israeli soldiers were taken under control and brought inside the ship while some passengers wished to harm the soldiers other passengers ensured that they were protected and able to receive rudimentary medical treatment from doctors on board two of the soldiers had received wounds to the abdomen one soldier had a superficial wound to the abdomen caused by a sharp object which penetrated to the subcutaneous tissue. None of the three soldiers had received gunshot injuries, according to the doctors who examined them. All three soldiers were in a state of shock and were suffering from cuts, bruises, and blunt force trauma. You kind of talked about the kind of inherently dangerous and kind of slapdash sounding nature of this uh, of this operation. And this is another thing that the eyewitnesses attest to is the fact that, you know, as we see, as we see on following the stuff in Gaza right now, you know, seeing the IDF operate, they're very young. Mm -hmm. 
especially for the positions that they're, I mean, you've got like 20 year old captains and that's, that's what people attest to here is the fact that when, when they're able to sort of gauge these soldiers, a lot of them are very young. A lot of them are very scared. Mm -hmm. This is not something that they've done before. I mean, this is not something that you probably trained that much for. I mean, fast roping onto a ship is the kind of thing that special forces do. Yeah. And so like that, that is something to keep in mind is like a lot of this, you're introducing these really volatile factors all into this cauldron and something is going to go wrong. You know, I think you can draw a pretty clear parallel to a lot of the police shootings that, you know, when you're going into a situation where you have all the guns and all the power, but you're still scared, you're the most dangerous person there. It's a very big escalation. Um, you know, you hear a lot of U.S. soldiers talk about, you know, Iraq and Afghanistan and, you know, how hard it actually was to get clearance to engage something like that. That, you know, throwing a rock was not enough just to light somebody up. Uh, so, yeah. So th- that is another factor here is you have this what seems like it should be a entirely one sided affair, but you actually have three IDF soldiers get captured. Yeah. Like you have to wonder, like, how does that happen? Then there had to be some bad tactics in there, right? Like that's that's not the way that's supposed to work. Like we said, like the the crew they're using, you know, makeshift weapons, stuff they can find. Some of them are armed with knives, but these are we're talking like kitchen knives here, right? Not military like <laughs> Bowie knives or something. Not the tactical knives you can buy on the TV at like two in the morning. So uh, we're going to go back to the account of Sumia Ertikin. And then also throughout all these, it's a lot of Turkish names. That's one I'm not very good with. So I'm, I know I'm messing up a lot of these names. There were so many shots aimed at the ship. I started to think they were aiming to sink the boat. People were running around to help each other. I saw a woman with tears in her eyes trying to give first aid to the injured ones. She was quite calm and trying to help the people around her. Later, I learned her husband had been shot in the head and fell martyred in her arms. The casualties in this incident are very one-sided, but that's not to say the passengers on the Mavi Marmara did nothing to fight back. So from the beginning, there's resistance to the boarding, the Zodiac boats. We see that they get repelled. That continued as the Israeli soldiers board the vessel from the helicopters. Passengers are using makeshift weapons to impede the progress. Yeah, I really feel like if I had access to guns at this point, I would be, now I would be breaking be out them. the guns. If if that was what I was trying to do. So these weapons included uh, pieces of wooden railing, which are wielded as clubs, chains, various other shipboard material, anything you can swing, basically. Yeah, I mean, I imagine you're going to have like some fire axes and things like there's that. A lot, I mean, there's a lot of dangerous stuff on a ship, potentially. So like I said before, some passengers did use knives. Um, these are kitchen knives. These are not combat knives. There's even a picture later on with a stack of these knives. And we're talking like something you'd be using to cut up vegetables i think if someone had like a k-bar i don't know that it truly like changes the facts of the matter anyway but the fact that it are they are like kitchen knives makes it even worse these are not like machetes or like katanas that we're dealing with here despite initial israeli claims that they'd been fired on by the passengers these claims were dismissed as being false If the IDF was taking gunfire, we see from the statistics in Gaza that it probably came from the IDF. (laughs) They 
They do have a pesky habit of shooting their own soldiers. They like to do that. Also, I feel like if they had received any kind of gunfire, that boat would have been sunk. Absolutely. That would have been an excuse to just go, like, whole hog. Like, I feel like they wish they had received gunfire from that boat. (laughs) It would have made it so much easier for them. Also, the ship and cargo had been thoroughly inspected by a third party before leaving Turkey, and no guns or other weapons were found to be on board. This is a well-documented humanitarian convoy. These ships were inspected hard. Again, like, the whole point is to draw attention to this, not to be sneaky. So there are some instances where, uh, you know, those soldiers who were captured, at least one of the firearms that was taken off of them was thrown overboard Mm -hmm. by one of the passengers, just trying to take it out of the equation, basically. I mean, not a bad plan. One of the people on board was, I think he was an American veteran. He had taken one of the guns, disassembled it, and hidden it. Mm -hmm. Or maybe just unloaded it. I mean, if you know what you're doing, you can take apart a gun and render it unusable pretty quick. So you have that, and you, you you don't have, this is not like mob violence. Um, this is this is pretty controlled. I mean, sure, you've got some emotions running high, and you've got some people who do want to cause really, really bad physical harm to these people, but you have the people in control saying, no, we are just going to take them inside, give them what medical care we can. I mean, to be fair, if someone shot at me, I would probably also, if I got them under my control, have some words slash physical things to, yeah. to do with them. But, I mean, fortunately, that's why you have people in control. Because, you know, the worst thing you can do as the humanitarian side of this is to further escalate the situation. And this is something that they received training on before. Um, also, the members of the convoy uh, of, of the flotilla, they did receive training in things like de-escalation, nonviolent resistance. So this is this is not something that they're going into cold. This is not a situation that anyone can really prepare for. But the people on board the Mahi Marmara were much better prepared for it than the IDF was. Uh, the soldiers are taken back inside. There is a bit of a standoff until they are released. Within not too long, uh, the Israeli soldiers are able to take control of the bridge. They have control of the ship and they announce as much over the intercom. I mean, that that's always how this ends, right? Like, there, there's not a scenario where this doesn't end that way. This was not, you know, a, a siege or anything like that. This, um, So this is over relatively quickly. And the IDF, uh, they start to round people up and start kind of the processing. Uh, so quoting here from Lubna Masarwa, who was on board the Mavi Marmara. We were under the control of the Israeli soldiers. Dozens of them stood in front of us in every corner, with guns pointed towards us. Their faces were covered with black. You could only see their eyes. I realized that we must not be human in the eyes of the Israeli soldiers when I saw them joking with each other. One of them was petting his dog after they had just killed innocent people in cold blood. If TikTok had been around in 2010, you know you would have seen some Israeli soldier TikToks of this. Absolutely. During the confrontation, a total of nine members of the Freedom Flotilla were killed by Israeli forces. Um, We tend not to revel in the gory aspects of any of these maritime disasters, unless they're relevant to the story. And here, I think it is relevant to the story, uh, these details, to understand the nature of the violence being deployed against the Freedom Flotilla. So we're going to talk about all nine of them here. And these are grouped by the location of where they died on the ship. Uh, This is just copying the style of the UN report. 
So the first group of those were killed on the top deck of the Mavi Marmara during the initial moments of the boarding. One of the first passengers to be shot was 60-year-old Ibrahim Bilgin. He received one long-distance bullet wound from a high angle and two additional bullet wounds to his right side. While none of these were immediately lethal, he would have bled to death without medical attention. And there's an initial disturbing detail about Bilgin's death. Forensic evidence shows that he was shot in the side of the head with a soft baton round at such close proximity that the entire beanbag and its wadding penetrated the skull and lodged in the brain. He had a further bruise on the right flank consistent with another beanbag wound. The wounds are consistent with the deceased initially being shot from soldiers on board the helicopters above and receiving a further wound to the head while lying on the ground already wounded. So this is the first of a couple where this isn't someone getting killed with a stray round. This is someone being wounded multiple times and then executed. In like the least humane way, like if you were going to do this, doing that with a beanbag round is like the most inhumane and like, yeah, you know, evil way that one could do that thing. Fari Yaldiz, age 42, was shot five times, once in the chest, once in the left arm and three times in the right leg. He died almost instantly. Another of these was Ali Haider Bengi, uh, who was age 38. The last person killed on the top deck was also the youngest to be killed, 19-year-old Furkan Doan. Listed in some sources as a dual Turkish-American citizen, but I also saw one saying he was just an American citizen. Doan was recording with a small video camera when he was shot. Uh, he received five bullet wounds to the face, head, back, left leg, and foot. All of the entry wounds were on the back of his body, except for the face wound, which entered to the right of his nose. According to forensic analysis, tattooing around the wound in his face indicates that the shot was delivered at point-blank range. This is two of these who are, seems to be on the ground, wounded, and again, dispatched uh, by the soldiers. The next group of four were killed as the Israeli soldiers uh, advanced down the bridge deck on the port side of the ship. Uh, one of these was Chevdet Kilichlar, age 38. He was the web director in the press room, and he had gone out onto the bridge deck near the main stairwell to take pictures of the raid. He was shot in the head and died instantly. A lot of the sources are pretty clear. He was shot directly between the eyes. Um, we know it's an established tactic of the Israeli military to target journalists, reporters, anyone with a camera. And here it's very clear that this was an intentional killing. You don't accidentally shoot someone between the eyes. Yeah, yeah, that's not a stray round. When they happen to be holding a camera to document what you're doing. Two that are kind of paired here, Chingiz Akus, age 41, and Chingiz Songer, age 46. They'd been sheltering on the bridge deck when they were shot from above. Um, attempting to flee inside the stairwell together, uh, Chingiz Akus was shot in the head and killed. Chingiz Songer was shot just below the neck from a high angle, damaging the heart and the aorta. They were able to get him inside, where attempts were made to resuscitate him, but these are unsuccessful. The last one of this group is Chetan Topchuoglu, age 54. Uh, he had been helping to bring injured passengers inside the ship. Uh, he was shot three times 
and he bled to death uh, with his wife at his side. The final death on board the Mavi Marmara was 31-year-old Nechtet Yildirim. Uh, it's not clear when or where he sustained these wounds that killed him, but he was shot twice in the midsection, once from the front and once from behind. He also had injuries consistent with plastic bullet impacts. There was one additional participant, though, in the flotilla who ultimately would lose his life, and that was Uyur Suleiman Sonmez. He was severely wounded during the raid, and he was in a coma for about four years uh, until he died in May of 2014, ultimately bringing the death toll to 10. And I think this is some of these details. This is one of the reasons it took me so long to to write this episode is that I kept on getting sidetracked because a lot of this is really like I I did not know a lot of these details going into it. Mm -hmm. I knew the story fairly well, um, but a lot of these, you know, darker, more gritty details are really, uh, really hard, especially when you're seeing so much of the same stuff happen every day uh, in Gaza and in the West Bank. So, yeah, it, it, it was hard to, to put this episode together. Yeah, this has been like is, this has been the least enjoyable episode of series we've ever done. I hate this episode. <laughs> I do. But I, I do feel like it's an important episode. So uh, getting into the aftermath portion here. So after the vessels of the Gaza Freedom Flotilla were fully under Israeli control, they arrived at the southern Israeli port of Ashdod around 5 p.m. on the 31st. Passengers on board went through a debriefing and interrogation process. Passengers were asked to sign a deportation order claiming that they had entered Israel illegally. They didn't want to enter Israel at all. This is why most of them refused to sign it. As you know, they had not entered Israel. That was not their goal. Yeah, but you brought me here. <laughs> yeah, so they refused to sign it. And that is those, those who understood what it even was. Um, mm-hmm. So most of the passengers report, obviously some of the people on board speak hebrew but a lot of the material given to them was not given to them in a language that they understood so back to the norwegian writer henning mankel describes the time after being removed from the ship quayside somewhere in israel i don't know where we were taken ashore and forced to run the gauntlet of rows of soldiers while military tv films us it suddenly hits me that this is something i shall never forgive them At that moment, they are nothing more, to my mind, than pigs and bastards. We're split up. No one is allowed to talk to anyone else. Suddenly, a man from the Israeli Ministry for Foreign Affairs appears at my side. I realize he's there to make sure I'm not treated too harshly. I am, after all, known as a writer in Israel. I've been translated into Hebrew. He asks if I need anything. My freedom and everybody else's, I say. I admit to nothing, of course, and I'm told I am to be deported. The man who says this also says he rates my book highly. That makes me consider ensuring nothing that I write is ever translated into Hebrew again. An interesting detail there. I mean, that, that would kind of piss me off though, after like the guy that like, you know, is holding me prisoner is like, by the way, I like your book. I mean, I feel the same way about the podcast sometimes. We'll get follows on Instagram and it'll be like, I do not want this person to listen to our podcast. <laughs> all, all the listeners now panicking and be like, is, 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 that, is that me? If you have to worry that it's you. Probably is. <laughs> it, then it probably is you. <laughs> so prisoners 
including journalists, were held for periods ranging from 24 hours up to five days. So that being the case, the initial information about the events on Mavi Marmara came from Israeli sources. Um, This is kind of the best time to discuss this story. We see the same thing happen right now in Gaza and and not just the the current, you know, not not since October 7th. This is this is something that has happened for decades. But, you know, in in the West, in the United States, we are the most plugged into the Israeli perspective on these things. So when one of these any of these stories breaks, we get the Israeli side first. And that kind of becomes a default narrative. And then you've, you've got to spend the days and weeks unpacking, unwrapping these webs here to see what, okay, what actually happened? What, what's a better idea of what actually happened? And I mean, I, th- I think that happens anywhere, right? Like when we look at Ukraine, Russia, we're really only getting information from the Ukrainian side. And same thing with like our, us being in an Iraq and Afghanistan previously, like, you know, we would have never, we never got to hear an Afghanistan perspective of things there. We would always hear ours. That that's just the nature of you know which which one are you most plugged into? Mm-hmm. I mean, there's a certain bit of like ease of access, right? Like it's not very easy to get an Afghani's opinion on on it. You know, yeah. it's a lot easier now with social media, I suppose. But in 2004, that was not an easy task. Well, and I think that really is one of the big things you're seeing now with the current assault on Gaza is that no longer are you stuck having to just have what CNN tells you is happening. Because if you did, you'd have a very different picture. I mean, now you you get things directly. You can see inside the hospitals that have just been bombed. For better or for worse, you can see the children with their intestines hanging out. Not just Anderson Cooper crying over something. Kind of the democratization of the news is a huge change, I think, for public opinion. Mm-hmm. It's a lot harder to hide things. You, yeah, you, you can't hide it and spin your own narrative anymore. It's just not easy to contain it. And I think in the same vein, it is easier to proliferate stuff that's fake or stuff that's um, stuff that's disingenuous uh, or, or misleading. But you you just you do have those on the ground voices who are able to share things, um, which I think is is worth it. So quoting again from filmmaker Yara Lee, who was on board the Muffy Marmara. Control of information was part of the Israeli attacks on our flotilla from the start. The IDF commenced by jamming satellite communications to prevent any contact between journalists on the ships and the outside world. The Israeli military proceeded to confiscate any cameras, phones, and hard drives that contained footage of the raid. All individuals aboard the flotilla, including journalists, were thrown in jail and kept in isolation as the IDF trumpeted its version of the attack nonstop. So this is where you get some of those narratives of the ship was armed. There were Al-Qaeda terrorists on board. I absolutely remember this happening and those kind of things being said. And at the time, I probably didn't care enough to look beyond that. You know, there were accusations that the organization, IHH, you know, they were tied to jihadists. Mm -hmm. That's one that I definitely remember from this time period is that like any kind of aid organization that wasn't like a Western aid organization was, well, they're probably, they probably have ties to Al Qaeda and ISIS. Yeah. So that, that whole thing. And like, again, like we said, that's the, that's kind of put out as a whole published piece before you start hearing anything from not even necessarily the Palestinian side, because this is largely a, a more international flotilla here. Are there even any Palestinians on board? The vessel? There's at least one. um, Because 
and and this this uh this is actually covered in Midnight on the Mavi Marmara, and I forget which I forget who it was, but they write about this how there was initially planned to be a bigger contingent, and I forget why there weren't as many as there were planned to be. It's an answerable question. I don't have the answer. Hey, it's Tanner here coming in during post-recording. I was able to find the information uh, that I was missing when we recorded the episode, and it comes from the essay Freeing Gaza, Liberating Ourselves by Hanin Zawabi, as it appears in Midnight on the Mavi Marmara. And I just want to read a short excerpt from that to explain the representation of Palestinians in the Gaza Freedom Flotilla. From Hanin Zawabi. Our contingent, the Palestinian citizens of Israel, joined the flotilla on Monday, May 24th. We traveled first to Turkey, where we were joined by other Arab delegations. We then organized several press conferences that attracted large numbers of journalists. I did not expect so much interest from the media. I also did not expect that the National Political Committee, which has been working on the project of building Palestinian national institutions inside of Israel, would get so much attention. We were the smallest delegation, only four people. But we received a great deal of attention from journalists and observers since we were the only Palestinian delegation. Gaza is under siege, nobody came from the West Bank, and no one was officially representing the Palestinian refugees. Suddenly, we found that we were representing all the Palestinians, not just the 1.2 million of us living inside Israel. In fact, the Palestinians of Israel are neglected by the Arab world and ignored by the international community. Our predicament is also part of the Palestinian problem, but it has yet to be acknowledged. On the National Political Committee, we carry the burden of representing those who stayed behind in their homeland after 1948 and after more than 530 Palestinian villages were leveled. People may not realize, but in that period, the major Palestinian cities, including Yaffa, Lod, Ramla, and Haifa, were destroyed and empty of many, but not all, of their Palestinian inhabitants. This is what we refer to as the Nakba, the catastrophe. Um, so in terms of responses to this, this is a, like we said with the I'm alone, you know, this is going to set off some international alarms. I imagine Turkey's pretty pissed. Yeah, the nation most directly tied to this is Turkey. Many of the organizers, participants are Turkish citizens. The Mavi Marmara is a Turkish owned ship. And like historically, Turkey and Israel were pretty good friends. You know, some some kind of common goals in the region. I mean, I feel uh, like, uh, I mean, Turkey being in NATO and being, you know, pretty Western aligned mm-hmm. has a lot to do with that. And this really hurt those those ties. I would imagine it's one of the only ways that Israel could be held accountable is by doing it to, you know, to a, a country like Turkey that has some agency and some pull that, you know, that they, they can demand some accountability in this. So the attack on the Mavi Marmara. Like I said, it really damaged that relationship. Uh, Turkey broke off diplomatic relations uh, over this, and they wouldn't actually be fully normalized until last year. Did they break them? Have they broke them off again yet? Uh, they've recalled their ambassador. I, I don't know if that technically counts as breaking off relations or not. 
I would imagine it's a, a severe strain, if nothing else. That That's not to say that they're friends now, because over Israel's actions in Gaza has led to these ambassadors being recalled again. However, a big step in that normalization process was an apology from Israel for the raid uh, and the payment of $20 million to the families of those who were killed. It's actually kind of crazy to think, but like Israel issuing an apology at this point, like in current time would be pretty wild. Yeah, for anything, really. Yeah. It's just wild that they actually did anything. Again, ha- part of that has to be that the you know nation of Turkey was able to put some pressure on them. Um, and so this is $20 million divided among those 10 families, including the one who, who died later. The Arab League and the African Union both issued condemnations of Israel's attack on the flotilla. The United States. United States obviously is going to be heavily invested in what Israel is getting up to. You don't want your asshole kid to embarrass you. Right. You don't have to bail him out again. Hillary Clinton, Secretary of State at the time, said. The United States supports the Security Council's condemnation of the acts leading to this tragedy, and we urge Israel to permit full consular access to the individuals involved and to allow the countries concerned to retrieve their deceased and wounded immediately. We urge all concerned countries to work together to resolve the status of those who were part of this incident as soon as possible. We support, in the strongest terms, the Security Council's calls for a prompt, impartial, credible, and transparent investigation. We support an Israeli investigation that meets those criteria. Well, that last sentence, she really left that last sentence there, didn't she? That is the most State Department bullshit. This is like an AI State Department statement. I think it's really important to pay attention to the language there. This is written in such a wishy-washy way that you could almost say it supports whichever side you kind of want it to be supporting. Wherever it needs to go, basically. That first sentence might, it kind of initially comes off as, oh, like the United States is kind of actually angry, but never says condemns the attack. It never says it condemns the raid. The incident. <laughs> it says supports the Security Council's condemnation of not the raid, but the acts leading to this tragedy. That could that could apply to anything over the past like 70 years. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, this is just the most like meaningless, open ended statement. However, there were American politicians who had firmer stances on this. Um, I want to say it was I know Mitch McConnell. Who was the who was the majority leader then? Was it John Boehner at that time? No, no, because this at this point, the Democrats were Harry mm-hmm. Reid. Harry Reid. Oh, um, Harry Reid and Mitch McConnell, they both sent a letter uh, to the Senate arguing in favor of the legality of the blockade and the raid and asking President Obama to support Israel in this. Some things never change. People are very frustrated right now with the fact that, like, where is the Democratic Party? Where are the people who you talk about human rights, you talk about equality? Where are you right now? Why are you allying with the Republicans on this? And this just goes to show there's a long history of this. This is a this is a bipartisan point of unity in the United States. I think it's an easy thing to do if you're an American politician. Like you're not gonna get any flack from anyone of in your mind of consequence, you know? Yeah, you're not gonna get in trouble for supporting Israel. So yeah, it's the easier thing to do here. I just thought that was I thought that was an interesting connection uh to uh to where things are right now. 
Uh, so talking about the the UN Human Rights Council investigation that we've been quoting from, uh, I've got a quote here from the introduction of that report. It was not generally contested that there was an interception by Israeli forces of a flotilla of ships and that the ships were carrying cargoes of a humanitarian nature. That apart, the mission considered that its mandate required it to ascertain the sequence of the facts and events as they occurred and to examine the reasons and justifications in law, if any, for the above. Having concluded their own investigation into the event, Israel did not recognize or cooperate with the UN investigation. We have investigated ourselves and found we did no, nothing, nothing wrong. wrong. Everybody, sing it with us. Uh, so a few of the major points from the conclusion section of the UN report. The mission has come to the firm conclusion that a humanitarian crisis existed on the 31st of May 2010. Any denial of this cannot be supported on any rational grounds. For this reason alone, the blockade is unlawful and cannot be sustained in law. There's clear evidence to support prosecutions of the following crimes within the terms of Article 147 of the Fourth Geneva Convention. Willful killing. Torture or inhuman treatment. Willfully causing great suffering or serious injury to body or health. The mission also considers that a series of violations of Israel's obligations under international human rights law have taken place, including Right to life Torture and other cruel, inhuman, or degrading treatment or punishment Right to liberty and security of the person and freedom from arbitrary arrest or detention Right of detainees to be treated with humanity and respect for the inherent dignity of the human person. Freedom of expression. So that's kind of where the UN report concludes. Um, as we said, you know, the way that this kind of wrapped up is that there is a, there is at least a little bit of a resolution to it in Israel issuing those those compensation payments for it uh, and acknowledging that it was not uh, not handled well. I could have handled that better, guys. Uh, it's really sorry. not cool that I did that. I hear you. <laughs> Your criticisms are valid to me. <laughs> I'm going to be working on myself. Uh, I'm going to be internalizing some of those, some of those valid critiques that you've been nice enough to present me I with. Israel issuing a notes apology. <laughs> <laughs> so there's a few other things here. Some of them we've already kind of touched on. One of the things that... It, not really going to go too deep into it, but something in this is that is Egypt's role in the blockade also, which is something that I think kind of gets glossed over sometimes. Uh, obviously, that Rafah crossing in the southern Gaza Strip borders Egypt. But also, Egypt isn't acting totally independently to enforce that. Like, this is because of deals that they have worked out with Israel. So even that, I mean, there's there's people who say, like, well, it can't be blockaded because like Israel doesn't control all the borders. And it's like, yeah, but they basically do. Yeah, like, I mean, OK, they'll like you see Israel bomb Lebanon. You know, they would just assume bomb Egypt, too. Yeah, I mean, there was bombing around the Rafah crossing, you know, weeks ago that happened. So, I mean, they basically operate with impunity there. So essentially, they do control all of the crossings. Uh, it, Egypt is not free to open it whenever they want. Mm hmm. 
Uh, so again, there was this allegations of like terror Al Qaeda affiliations. Explaining why you attacked an unarmed civilian aid flotilla is pretty hard. Uh, but explaining why you attacked a terrorist fleet is easy. This has like some migrant caravan energy. Yeah, I hadn't even made that connection, but yeah, I can I can see that also saying, oh, they're full of it's it's some it's some amalgamation of Hamas and MS-13. Some bad hombres, I believe, is is the phrasing that was used at the time. So kind of just to wrap things up here, uh, to end this on something of a high note, I think that's kind of the that's kind of what we're seeing is is the story of Gaza is it's just an endless stream of the most horrific things you've ever seen um, that you would think would have to break a people. And it doesn't. Um, and it hasn't, you know, over over the decades, Palestine is still there. Palestine is still strong. And so, yeah, I think ending this on a a bit of a positive note uh, is probably for the best here. Uh, so in terms of significance and legacy, quoting here from Ali Abu Nima, included in that Midnight on the Mavi Marmara, this is his essay, The Day the World Became Gaza, uh, a, a quote from that. The Freedom Flotilla represented the very best and most courageous of the civil society spirit and determination not to abandon fellow human beings to the cruelty, indifference, and self-interest of governments. And so I think as we, as our wrap up here, the last thing I'd like to do is uh, ending with another quote from Henning Mankell from a June 2nd entry in his diary after he had been deported back to Sweden. I listened to the Blackbird, a song for those who died. Now it is still all left to do, so as not to lose sight of the goal, which is to lift the brutal blockade of Gaza. That will happen. Beyond that goal, others are waiting. Demolishing a system of apartheid takes time. But not an eternity. Palestine, 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 Palestine,